are listening to a message from Bethany First Church of the Nazarene, online at bethanynaz.org. I greet you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ this morning. We have been here since about July, and we're very thankful for BFC. You all have welcomed us here and, and been a part of our becoming comfortable in this area again. And I'll tell you a little bit more about my background. I, I grew up in this area, but... It is, uh, for the first time in 30 years, uh, great to be back in Oklahoma and to live here. We usually go to the, we usually go to the late service, and <clears throat> I, I want to I fill in as well for Pastor Rick as I can, and I want to be faithful to the patterns that he has. And, and in the second service, he usually preaches for about an hour, so I'm going to try to fill as much of that as I can. <clears throat> want to be faithful to that. It is always important when you see a preacher step into the pulpit that they have their clock. So I am watching that today. <sighs> but I do want to, I do want to say it's, uh, it has been great to, to come here and, and to settle into a church. Uh, for the first time in 25 years, we didn't move to a place for me to pastor a church. And for those of you that have never pastored before, it's difficult for a pastor to find a church. So I said to my wife and my son, who are moving here with me, I'm, I'm letting you decide this time. And, and they chose you, and I think they've chosen wisely. We're thankful for the opportunity to be here. And this is, again, for the first time in 25 years, the first time that I thought I wasn't going to be preaching for the first Sunday of Advent. God knows better, doesn't he? I do hope that Pastor Rick gets well soon and that he returns. You do know that you have one of the finest preachers in our denomination here as your pastor. I hope you know that. <clears throat> that really and truly has been a, a blessing. Preachers become preaching snobs after a while, and, and so that is the great fear. Lord, am I going to have to listen to terrible sermons week in and week out like my people have for the last 25 years? But that hasn't been the case for me, so really glad for that. Will you, will you pray with me this morning as we ask for God to speak to us through his word? <clears throat> Lord, we're very thankful for your presence here. We didn't get here first, you did. And you called us to this place. You invited us into this place and into your presence because you have something to say to us. You want to remind us, not just of who we are, but of who you are. So today as we hear your word, will you remind us? Of both of those things, and as you remind us of, of who you are, will you remind us that that truly does make us who we are, your people. Shape us and form us today by your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to invite you to turn to Isaiah chapter 9. We're going to touch just a little bit on the end of chapter 8 and then into the first seven verses of chapter 9, but I want to start with verse 1. It just gives us context. It gives us history. Beginning in the middle of the first verse of chapter 9 in Isaiah, I want you to just hear this historical situation so that later when we hear the hope and, and in a minute when we hear the despair and darkness, I want you to know that this is rooted in a historical situation. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor the Galilee and the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. It, this story finds us, these, these poetic words of Isaiah find us in a, a place of despair for the nation of Israel. 
the Assyrians have come and they have occupied two of the territories of Israel and things are beginning to, to get very bleak very quickly. <clears throat> but this isn't a new thing. This started a long time ago. Long, long ago, the, the people began to say and do horrible things as they went farther and farther away from God. And, and it's all summed up in a phrase that really captures what's happening with Israel both in this passage and in much of the Old Testament. And everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It's a phrase that we see several times in the book of Judges, which is one of the bleakest and darkest of the books in the Old Testament. Judges chapter 17, verse 6, In those days there was no king in Israel. All the people did what was right in their own eyes. And then the very last verse in the book of Judges, in those days there was no king in Israel. All the people did what was right in their own eyes. When we see phrases that are repeated exactly in Scripture, that's really important. We need to note that. And this is a phrase that we see over and over again in Scripture, especially in this very dark period. And it, it sounds familiar, doesn't it? Don't we live in a society today that encourages us to follow our own heart, to find our own truth, to make our own way. Doing what's right in our own hearts is kind of a national pastime for us, isn't it? Just as it was for the Israelites. And as a result, Isaiah, the book of Isaiah begins in judgment. The first 39 chapters are really setting the table for the judgments that will take place over the course of a number of years. And, and these judgments are falling upon God's people because they have failed God in three major ways. In a lack of trust in God, which is demonstrated by a constant flirtation with idols. And for a lack of a better way to say it, they just didn't take care of each other. They didn't provide for each other like families should. So for this constant failure, God announces in this book the reality of judgment for the sins and failures of God's people. Chapters 1 through 39 deal with the early threat of the destruction brought about by the Assyrians, which is where we pick up our story today. But even before that, even before we get to the glimmers of hope, we, we see maybe the darkest spot in the book, beginning with verse 19 in Isaiah chapter 8. And if you're there, I'd invite you to look at that with me. Verse 19 in chapter 8 of Isaiah. When someone tells you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people of God, or should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? Consult God's instruction and the testimony of warning. If anyone does not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged, and looking upward will curse their king and their God. Then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. These pictures of, of a, a very dark world, they, they, they paint pictures for us of witchcraft and sorcery, we heard it, mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, which Isaiah contrasts clearly with God's word, that we should consult God's instructions and the testimony of warning. If anyone does not speak according to the word, they have no light of dawn. 
and then hunger and darkness and anger at their kings and their God, turning to the wrong sources, putting their trust in the wrong people, listening to the wrong voices, the wrong speeches, the wrong sales pitches. Reminds me of an old song that many of you may remember, looking for love in all the wrong places. The Israelites become angry at their leaders for leading them into hunger and captivity and darkness. They're angry at God for abandoning them when in reality, it was they who turned their backs on God. The Israelites were lost in hunger and darkness. They were hopeless. How did they get here? How did they end up like this? Now, I need to confess something to you for a moment. When I read through scripture, I I oftentimes find myself just fists clenched angry at the Israelites. Do you? When you're reading through the Bible, do you ever just think to yourself, why are these people so dumb? I read through these stories and I think of all the wonderful things that God did for these people and I just think, why don't you get it? What are you doing? Why don't you just trust in God? Don't you hate it when you're reading the word and you get really convicted about something and then God taps you on the shoulder? When I get really frustrated with the Israelites, God just gently comes to me and says, hey, you are them and they are you. We are the Israelites. We are so prone to lack in trust of God. We are so likely to turn to idols. We are so bad at taking care of each other. We are just like the Israelites. We are unwise and short-sighted. We are weak and finite. We are earthbound subject to decay and death and disease and destruction, and we are divided from each other and from God. We are confused and chaotic, restless and ruthless. At our core, this is who the Israelites are, and this is who we are. We are just like the Gentiles in in Ephesus that Paul describes in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning with verse 11. Therefore, Remember that formerly, you who are Gentiles by birth and called the uncircumcised by those who are the circumcision, remember that at that time you were separated from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenant of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. Let me read that last line because it haunts me. Without hope and without God in the world. What's it like to be hopeless? Lost in utter darkness, without hope and without God in the world. We long for hope. Human beings are hardwired for hope. Hope is essential to who we are, to our very survival. Even secular philosophers, physicians, and psychologists recognize the essential need for humans to have hope. 
I love to hear Shannon Pittenger's story this morning. Even as she enters into this this time of, of treatment, hope. Even secular doctors emphasize the the absolute essential nature of hope for human healing and recovery from diseases like cancer. Hope is the subject of our movies and our stories, the gift of our heroes and the stimulus of so many in so many situations that seem unredeemable and beyond help. We actually sang this as one of the phrases of one of our songs this morning, but Alexander Pope, an English poet, once said, hope springs eternal in the human heart. Proverbs 13, 12 says, hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. We need hope. We long for hope. We wait for hope. But what do we hope for? Hopefully love, joy, peace, maybe survival through cancer treatments. Many hope for just enough food for the day, their next breath, maybe light in the midst of tremendous darkness. I want us to go back to Isaiah. The key for us as Christians is aligning our hopes with God's word instead of listening to the the mutterings of the world around us. So let's return to our passage, and I want to pick it up in verse 2. I'll be reading Isaiah 9, 2 through 5. Hear these beautiful and familiar words. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke of their burdens, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressors, Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. There's some difficult phrases in this passage. There's some images that are probably hard for many of us to relate to. And these might help us further understand the darkness in which the Israelites have been living. Boots of tramping warriors, garments rolled in blood, These are heavy images to deal with, and yet we can almost feel the relief, the weight rolling off those Israelites, can't we? We can maybe even feel the heat of the fire and smell the burning of the blood and the leather as the tools of war of our oppressors are burned. Can we feel the elation from verse 3? As the people divide the plunder of their defeated enemy... These are still difficult images. To, they're, they're difficult for us to relate to. I don't know about you, but I've, I've never divided plunder. <clears throat> but there is one image in verse 3 that stands out very clearly to me. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. How many of you are currently in the state of Oklahoma? 
quite a few of you. Oklahoma is one of the top five, one of the top five producers of wheat in the whole country. This is a farming community. And as I said, I, I grew up just north of here in Edmond, Oklahoma. My grandpa was a farmer. He ran mostly cows and winter wheat. And it was a long, long time ago, but one of my fondest memories from my growing up was one summer when we all as a family, it was probably the, the first time I remember it, we all gathered together and we, we got into our cars and our trucks and, and our, our trailers and all of those things and we, we drove out into the pasture. It was so cool. We, we got out there and, and, and we set up a couple of tables under the trees and, and all of my dad and my uncles and my grandpa, they, they went and, and they got in their, their trucks and the, the thresher and, and, and they, they drove out into the field and, and they began bringing in the harvest. And, and the ladies stayed under the shade tree and they started working on lunch and, and they were trying desperately to keep all of us kids just from whatever we were doing. Just trying to keep us a little bit out of harm's way. But I think that scene was so poignant for me because now looking back on it, I recognize how fraught with danger and risk farming really is. You plant your seed and then you wait. Now these days we have lots of fancy stuff in farming. We have lots of pesticides that help us, lots of fancy super generated seeds that, that promise lots of produce. We have all kinds of new tractors and farm implements. But the fact is that regardless of all of that, you still take the seed and put it in the ground and then it's out of your hands. You can't manipulate the harvest. There's a lot of risk involved in farming. And I could feel it on that day. It was palpable. The entire field was just full of joy. The harvest was in. Hope was fulfilled. Can you feel it? Can you feel this image in Isaiah? This, this farming thing, everything depended on the harvest coming in. That's how they paid their bills, my grandparents. That's how they fed their families. That's even how they helped sustain their church and take care of their neighbors. The harvest was a culmination of a season of huge risk. And it ended in joy. It reminds me of a, of a phrase that I love from a song that you're probably familiar with. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. That song was written in 1868 by Phillips Brooks after a trip to Bethlehem. He and his church organist wrote the song for a children's choir. Neither of them thought it would last beyond that year. Little did they know. We still sing it today, O little town of Bethlehem. That song is about our hope. That song is about our Savior. That song is about the one we rest our hope in when we hear the rest of this passage. Will you continue with me in verse 6 to hear these familiar words? For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, 
and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the, government, of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end, and he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This, this is our hope, the character of our king. These descriptions are so familiar to us. We, we probably even hear, I, I've heard it all, all day yesterday and all the day before, that, that refrain from the Messiah, George Friedrich Handel, wonderful counselor, mighty God, prince of peace, Everlasting Father, it sings to us. Now, the, the King James has this separated a little bit, so we have five characteristics, and, and so we hear wonderful, comma, counselor. The, the actual Hebrew is intended to convey a wonder of a counselor. Our God, our King, is a wonder of a counselor. It's the nearest word that Hebrew has to supernatural, conveying the idea of wisdom far above and beyond that of human wisdom. Mighty God. The word mighty here indicates military power and might. Everlasting Father reminds us that God is both imminent and transcendent, close and personal, and yet transcending everything over and above all of creation, holding everything in his hands. Prince of peace. Prince here conveys the idea of, of an administrator. And, and peace isn't just the absence of war. Peace is that wonderful Hebrew word shalom, meaning fulfillment, well-being, harmony, Shalom is order in the midst of chaos. This is our hope. We have to remember, we, we're unwise and short-sighted. But our king is a wonderful counselor, wise beyond our ability to understand. We, well, we're weak and finite, but our king is a mighty God, a mighty, powerful warrior who fights for us and in us and through us. We are earthbound, subject to decay and disease, death and destruction. We are divided from each other and from God, but our king is an everlasting father. God is eternal beyond space and time, yet living within us and loving us personally as our father. Just as we pray in the Lord's Prayer, our father who fills the heavens, hallowed be thy name. We are confused and chaotic, restless and ruthless. But our king is the prince of peace, 
the administrator of shalom, well-being, wholeness, harmony, and bringer of order in the midst of our very own chaos. And I want you to hear this last part one more time. Verse 7. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. The tireless, never-ceasing, redeeming energy of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This, let me remind you what this is. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from this time on and forevermore. The Lord Almighty in his zeal will accomplish this. When you're feeling hopeless, when you're feeling purposeless, when you're feeling like you're smothered in darkness and you don't know the way forward, remember... God reminds us in multiple places throughout Scripture. Psalm 138, Psalm 57, 2, Proverbs 16, 3, and 4. God will accomplish his purposes. Now, in churches that I've pastored in the past, we use this really cool word. It's, it's amen. It means so be it. So if you believe that last part that I said, I'm going to run it by you one more time, and I'd love for you to participate. The Lord will fulfill his purposes. These lights are really bright. I wasn't even sure you were there, but I'm glad that you are. That is an amen. That is a so be it. We believe that. And when we believe that, with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we have hope. I don't know how God will use you or your story to bring about his purposes. I don't know how God will redeem your pain, restore your joy, or renew your hope. I don't know how God will bring you out of your darkness and into his marvelous light. I don't know what your darkness is, what it looks like, or how long you've been in it. But I know that we are called to be a people who rejoice at the harvest. So I wanna leave you with one more image. And then I want to pray with you. And as I pray, the, the musicians are going to come and we're going to, we're going to sing and, and we're going to continue to rejoice. We're going to continue to, to remember that God is the Lord of the harvest and, and that God will accomplish his purposes. But I, I want you to hear this. Mark chapter 4, verse 26 through 30. This is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground. Night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain. First the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it because the harvest has come. Will you bow your heads with me? I don't know how. I don't know when. 
But I know that the Lord will fulfill his purposes in you and in me and in us and in his world. He will redeem us. He will restore us fully. He desires to do that through us. So we place our seed in the earth and we wait. Lord, we trust you today to bring the harvest. We ask today that you would fulfill your hope in us, that all of our hopes and all of our fears may rest in you today, and that we can trust you as our wonderful counselor, our mighty God, our everlasting Father, and our Prince of Peace. You have been listening to a message from Bethany First Church of the Nazarene. Visit us online at bethanynaz.org.